Welcome to the One Stop Shop Podcast. One Stop Shop is Receiptful's weekly podcast with the goal of helping ambitious e-commerce merchants learn from the best. Each episode will have a successful business person tell us their story from their humble beginnings to their triumphs and successes of where they are today. Today we interview Sander, founder of Dharma Shop. We discuss his story and the ethical responsibilities businesses have to their suppliers and customers. We hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. I am Aliana. I have on the line our co-host and producer Jeff. How's it going, Jeff? Well, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing dandy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm dandy. You can ask me twice if you'd like. Yeah, all right. And our guest today is a business person with an interesting story and a mission. Um, his name is Sander Cohen, and he is the founder of Dharma Shop. I hope I'm saying it right. We're going to chat with Sander today about his story and talk about what it takes to build ethical, sustainable sourcing in business. Sander, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, absolutely. I'm uh, glad to be here. Thank you. All right, let's start with you before we talk about your shop. We want to know who is Sander Cohen and what makes you you? Wow. He said there weren't going to be any hard questions. That's uh, that's a really tricky one. I am a lifetime Michigander. I've been living in Michigan most of my life. And although I started Dharma Shop when I was living in Florida for a very short time, I came back to Michigan and I started Dharma Shop in 1999, right after the all the initial dot-coms sort of went out of business. And all of my friends thought I was crazy for starting an internet company. (laughs) I started Dharma Shop and it was almost instantly successful. It's a a very small niche of Tibetan Buddhist products, something that I had uh, a great interest in at the time, but not a lot of knowledge in. I'm a musician. I played in a a band called Gangster Fun in Michigan. was one of the early ska bands in the 80s. And I'm a pilot and a volleyball coach. I coach high school and club volleyball players, as well as work with our Olympic team. So I have a lot of interests and a lot of different things that I do. But Dharma Shop's been sort of a lifelong mission after 17 years of running it. It's uh, just growing and growing and growing. If I can, I want to jump in real quick. Where in Michigan are you located? Because I'm in Michigan. Ah, excellent. We are just outside of Detroit in Farmington Hills. Okay. All right. I'm out of the uh, Grand Rapids area. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, we we have a lot of contributors uh, to Dharma Shop. Our photographer and our videographer are both uh, in the Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo kind of area. There's so much going on that part of Michigan right now. Mm -hmm. And we're taking advantage of that with some incredible creative work coming out of there. Awesome. Great to hear. Just to familiarize our listeners with the with the Dharma Shop. And first, can you tell us, you know, can you explain to us the concept of Dharma? Dharma is technically the teachings of the Buddha. And most monasteries in Nepal and Tibet would have a little Dharma shop that sold religious items, Buddhist items, uh, prayer flags, beads, things like that. So the term Dharma shop, um, I was pretty lucky to get the, the actual URL for Dharma shop because it is typic- it's basically explaining this is a shop that sells Buddhist products. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a lucky get for me. And like I said, it was 1999. 1999, that's what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was 99, so I had a good jump on things. And mm. a lot of people have told me that that's one of the great things about Dharma Shop is that it is it is exactly what it's purporting to be. It's a, a shop that sells items that are originally we sold just uniquely Buddhist meditation practice items. 
But as it's grown, we sell a lot of jewelry. We sell a lot of yoga-inspired products because that's what's really popular right now, and that's what's selling really well for us. But while a lot of our competitors left Nepal or left handmade products and went to factory-made products in China, we've stayed in Nepal for the entire 17 years, and we've grown deeper and deeper commitments with our fair trade artisan groups in Kathmandu and in the valley around it. Yeah, that's great. We'll explore that uh, a little bit later in the interview. I wanted to start with what was life like for you before Dharma Shop? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I was 30 when I started Dharma Shop. I started Dharma Shop when I was about 30. I was coaching multiple volleyball programs. I was a volleyball coach at Michigan State University, which is uh, where I was going to school late into my 20s. And I was coaching at uh, Lake Sumter Community College and Orlando Volleyball Academy in Florida when I was there for a short time. And the life of a volleyball coach is pretty simple. I was working three jobs and I made pretty much no money. So I started selling some of the products that I had laying around that I personally used to meditate with and I personally used for Buddhist practice. And eBay was new. I put a few things on eBay and they sold really quickly. And very soon I put up my first website using Microsoft Publisher, if you can believe it. And I did it overnight because I was so worried that someone else was going to beat me to this niche. I put it up overnight and the next day started getting phone calls. But yeah, I was really unaware of of what I was getting myself into. I was doing a lot of different things. I was working a lot of different odd jobs and I was living on my own when I started it. And I couldn't believe how quickly we started gaining momentum because there was no one else who was really doing a great job of selling these kind of products online. Hmm. So the store started in 1999, I guess, and you were selling all these things that, as you mentioned, but your website says that after a family trip to Nepal is when you dedicated the store entirely to Himalayan artists. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip that changed it for you? Sure. I think the most interesting part is that I wasn't on that family trip. (laughs) My father and my sister went to Nepal and they actually met some of the people who I had been emailing back and forth with Mm -hmm. and they stayed with them at their home. So I went to Nepal just after that. And so my family met all of the artists who were working on our products before I did. And it took a while until I had the money to actually get to Nepal myself. When I did get to Nepal, I did realize how how much work really needed to be put into the relationships there to make sure that products were being made exactly the way that you wanted them to be made. And that's quality control, but it was also a lot of people were buying products from Nepal, but the actual beads or the actual chains or the actual pendants were coming from China or from other countries, and they were just being sold through Nepal. So it was important for me to see products being made in person and get to know the relationships between the people there and our production managers so that we can continue improving quality while making sure things were actually being made there. My sister is a rabbi, and she went to Nepal to teach English, and she spent almost eight months there. So she was in Nepal um, for a long time. She also went to Tibet, something which I've never gotten to do. And uh, my father joined her there. So my sister and my dad were the ones who got really, really excited about what I was doing on a really part-time basis. And after that trip, I got really serious about it and started running Dharma Shop on a full-time basis. 
Now, all this happened in 1999 or around that time, right? So it was before Airbnb and all that because you mentioned staying in their homes and, and you know, <laughs> that was really interesting. But um, did you travel much before this trip? Did you go anywhere? I mean, how did you get interested in all this? This is where sort of the personal story comes in. I was raised Jewish in a Reformed Jewish family, and Judaism doesn't have a lot of, uh, they don't talk a lot about the afterlife, reincarnation, heaven, any of those kind of things. So in Reformed Judaism, when my mom got very, very ill, there wasn't really a great path for me to grieve my way through it. Mm -hmm. So I found Buddhism, and there was a Buddhist center in Ann Arbor near me, and I started going to uh, some meditation classes, and I discovered Buddhism, which has been with me since then. And that's where I bought some of the first beads and some of the first statues and some of the first incense that I ended up turning around and selling to, to start Dharma Shop. But yeah, I came to it with a very personal desire to look for some sort of meaning in life and what happens after life. And discovered later in Judaism, of course, like I mentioned, my sister's a rabbi, that there actually is quite a rich uh, background in, in uh, reincarnation in Judaism as well. But I've spent most of my time since then identifying myself as a Buddhist and someone who meditates daily, and I'm very bad at it still to this day, but I think everybody is. We might need a tutorial on that. I, f I feel like a lot of people are confused on how to meditate. Like when you sit and you try to meditate and then you spend the entire time thinking, am I doing this right? Right. <laughs> I'm a big proponent of beginner's mind. I don't think you're ever really going to get great at meditating. I think people are really scared off by people who claim to be able to just enter a dreamlike state for an hour and everything disappears. I think the vast majority of us just sit there trying to silence our mind and failing at it. And that's okay, because that's failing at things every day is, is kind of what I believe in. And what I teach as a volleyball coach, what I teach in meditation, if you're not used to failing at stuff, you're not going to be very good at life, because failing is a huge part of life. All right, so you've based pretty much your whole business on the work of these Tibetan artisans. Why have you become so dedicated, dedicated to this group of people? Well, the original things that I sold were free Tibet shirts and uh, stickers and things made directly for the free Tibet movement. I connected with students for free Tibet, mostly because the, the way the Tibetans have been treated in China has been horrifying for the past 60 years. Tibet's not a free country, so there are no products that come out of Tibet that are fairly made. Anything that says it's made in Tibet is coming from China and there's no way to know if it was handmade by artisans or if it was made in factories. Unfortunately, to this day, if you go to Tibet, you'll be shown monasteries, you'll be shown Tibetan people, but there's really been mass cultural genocide going on there for the past 60 years. In Nepal, there's a, a small but pretty powerful group of Tibetan artisans who live in a section of Kathmandu near some of the, the big stupas there, the uh, Bodhnath Stupa and Swam Bodhnath, these two big... Buddhist sites. Um, Nepal is mostly a Hindu country, but there's quite a few Tibetan Buddhists who have literally walked from Tibet across the mountains, many of them barefoot, into Nepal and have been mostly welcomed by Nepal. There's also a huge Tibetan community in India and a rather large Tibetan community in the United States. So our Tibetan artisans are in India, they're in Nepal, they're in New York, they're in Colorado, they're in California. We do a lot of design work here in the U.S. and then have things made in Nepal. So Tibetan Buddhism is important to me, but the Tibetan people have been victims of, of a 
a cultural genocide that continues to this day. And when we can buy the products that um, they are making, that our statue makers, for instance, have learned how to make these Tibetan statues from their parents, from their parents' parents, their third and fourth and fifth generation statue makers, we're keeping traditions alive and we believe we're keeping a culture alive as well. Not to say that all of our products are necessarily by, made by Tibetans. We have Nawari artisans and Nepalese artisans. And in fact, the Nawar people made a lot of the ritual items for the Tibetans long before Tibet was taken over by China. So much of the woodworking products that we, that we carry and a lot of the architectural things that people consider part of Tibetan Buddhism are actually Nawar. So we work with artists all over Nepal. The, most of them are Tibetan, but they're Noir and Nepalese as well. Yeah, we really admire this dedication that you for this particular group of people and, and the values that your company stands for. Uh, one thing with having such like a high level of value and making sure that these conditions are, are what they need to be and that type of thing and that you're not just kind of going with the flow of, of buying into the, the China-based product and that type of thing. How are you able to run a thriving business like you have been while maintaining such high standards? It's been difficult. Um, we travel to Nepal every year. So I'm there at least once a year, occasionally twice a year. My wife has come with me a couple times. We have a 10-year-old son, so it's really difficult to travel together. To Nepal. Uh, he has not gone with us there yet, but he probably will go on the next trip. You know, when we first started, I was literally connecting via email. I hadn't met the artists yet. But the first time that I went, I started meeting some of these artists in groups. They started hosting me in their homes. And every time I get to Nepal, we, we walk into people's homes and there's a ceremony. You know, there's each family has its own cultural ceremony for welcoming a guest into the house. And it doesn't take very long before you really become part of the family. When I get to Nepal, I have to visit everybody because I have so much family there. And they may not be family by blood, but at this point, they're definitely family. And I can't imagine ever walking away from that, even though I get emails on a day-to-day -day basis from other people selling products very similar for a tenth the price because they're being factory-made. It's much more important to me that we continue working with our family and our business partners in Nepal. So when we go every year, we visit everyone who is making our products. For instance, the Copan Nunnery um, outside of Kathmandu makes most of our incense at this point. It took two or three visits to the nunnery to convince them to make all of our incense. They weren't so sure we were going to be able to buy enough. They wanted to sell us three or 400 boxes at a time. And we said, no problem, we can totally sell that many, even though we weren't really sure we could. We now buy something like 20 or 30,000 boxes of incense a year from them. Wow. And it directly supports the nuns themselves make it as part of their practice. There's this beautiful wing of their gampa there, their prayer room there, which is for raising money for the nuns to, to eat and to live and, and have everything paid for there. And selling incense is one of the things that they do. And we've videotaped and recorded the process of doing it. It's all done by hand. And the nuns are laughing and telling stories and talking in this beautiful open air room with all the windows open. It's just amazing to watch. And it's something they were doing already. Now they provide all of this incense for us. We then take about half that, that incense and we donate it to 
Tibetan groups in the United States who then sell that to raise money for their own for their own causes. Some of them are sending money to other Tibetan monasteries and nunneries. Some of them are just raising awareness of the Tibetan situation. So we're able to sort of double down on supporting Tibetans in Nepal and India all over the world by just doing sort of a, something different than most people would do, which is go and convince someone, hey, you should be the main supplier of our incense because we love what you're doing. So so you talk about, uh, you know, all the positives and, and I'm sure like, you know, you talk about, uh, for example, not wanting to buy from, from China and uh, street vendors and wanting to su- support, you know, these people who need your help. But can you talk to us a little bit and not to make the conversation negative, but can you talk to us about the difficulties that come with this? And it's a, it's a handmade business, right? Handmade items. And I'm sure I would imagine it's like logistically really difficult to, to communicate with people overseas, different languages, you know, all these barriers. Can you talk to us about this? The language barrier is an interesting one because the languages in the Kathmandu Valley, like I said, it's mostly a Hindu region. So there's seven main dialects of Hindi, and then there's more dialects of Nepali. And because of that, everyone speaks English. So luckily, everyone's completely fluent in English because it's the only way anyone can talk to each other in Kathmandu, which is really crazy, but really convenient. Um, Yes, obviously, getting products from Nepal Getting them the same all the time is basically impossible. And for years, we were really frustrated by this. We have a product manager there who oversees everything that gets shipped to us. And he makes sure that things that are cracked or broken or really actually not sellable, that those don't get shipped to us. Although, of course, when we first started, we got lots of things shipped to us that were broken, that were damaged, that were not the right color, not the right item. Uh, To this day, if we order 100 of a particular pendant, We'll get 30 in one color and 20 in another and 40 in another. So we have an in-house photographer. We have uh, someone whose job it is to put products on the site every day. And that's how we ended up with about 6,000 different products on our site. And that makes it very difficult because we'll have a product that really sells incredibly well. We'll reorder it. And when it comes back in stock, it'll have a different spacer or a different pendant or a different charm or it comes in a completely different color. And we have to start over again with creating a new picture of it, uh, getting a new model picture of it. All of it takes time. So that uh, that used to be a really frustrating part of the business. But now we see it as kind of charming. I mean, we tell our customers, if you really want something exactly the way it's pictured, you probably better buy it now because you never know when it's coming back in. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you could use that scarcity almost as a... Uh, I mean, because on one hand, it's it's hard to... I feel kind of guilty talking about it, but it's like on one hand, you have this excellent, excellent mission, but on the other hand, you still are a business and you need to make a profit. Otherwise, you can't continue your excellent mission. And so, I mean, it seems like some of those negatives, the whole like, let's make some lemonade type of approach, like could apply in this in this case. Yeah. In fact, um, there was a point at which our our shop was the exact size where that made perfect sense, where you could put a one of a kind necklace or bracelet on Facebook and 200 people would like it, one person would buy it, and then you'd go, okay, we'll move on and promote the next thing. Right now, we have so many customers and so much traffic that if you were to advertise something that was one of a kind, you end up with 60 people writing you and saying, how dare you put up something that you don't have in stock? Mm -hmm. So it has been a little difficult to make that transition from a very small 
company that was very excited to sell that one necklace a day to being a company that ships 50 to 100 orders a day and how to handle the the growth. The growth has definitely been the biggest problem for us. We've been hiring people here in Detroit and we have now five full-time staff members. And five years ago, we were in a 400 square foot garage. And today I'm talking to you from a 5,000 square foot warehouse in Farmington Hills. So we've grown really, really quickly, but that's brought tons of tons of issues that you know, we've needed all kinds of things to solve, whether it's moving to Shopify, which we just did three months ago, or finding a company like yours who provides great receipts and also provides recommendations. With 6,000 products on the site, product recommendations are a, are a major issue. And it's something that we always look uh, to do better because it's really hard when you sell a lot of things really quickly. But yeah, it, it, the scarcity part of it does intrigue some of our customers. I'll give you one more example. We we sell something called Z-Beads, DCI beads. And when I started all those years ago in 1999, you could go buy a handful of antique Z-Beads for about $500. And today, each one of those Z-Beads would be in the twenty dollars to $60,000 range a piece. Okay. So a number of things due to scarcity have just ballooned in price insanely. And we can't even get a hold of those things, let alone sell them. So... You know, there have been a lot of things over the years that we've just been priced out of in Nepal. And part of that has been the Chinese economy has grown so much. Chinese buyers really want things that are scarce and hard to find. And some of the things that we've sold have become some of the things that have gotten almost impossible for us to buy and sell. So, um, Sandra, do you have any advice for our listeners who may be starting right now the small business of handmade products And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, that they're outsourcing from, you know, a different country or they have a mission like yours. But, you know, handmade products in general, how was your experience? Like, what would you do differently now if you had a chance to go back? Yeah, it is really hard. I mean, when I started literally hand coding with HTML and, you know, there was no PayPal, there was no... Shopify. Back then, yeah, there was nothing like that. So we had to create every part of our website ourselves. Something like Shopify does really make things incredibly easy. A lot of the things that we had to create out of whole cloth, it's just all there for you at this point. A lot of those things are a lot easier, but what we're seeing a lot right now is people are coming up with something that's based on a trend. And, you know, trends go away. And I have no doubt at all that a lot of the things we're selling a lot of right now, we won't be selling in a couple of years. But we're not going to be going anywhere because this isn't a trend. You know, the handmade part of it isn't a trend for us. The yoga products, the mala beads, none of those are trendy items for us. They're, they're practice items with meaning. And our customer base may change over the years, but it's never going to go away completely because we're buying things that we care about. And the people who we've seen that have gone out of business over the years are the ones who got products that came in, whether they were handmade or machine-made, they came into their warehouses in boxes, they got put on shelves in boxes and shipped back out in boxes. When we get products in from Nepal, we open everything, check everything, look at everything, wear everything, test everything. We love the products. And I think if you don't love the products that you're selling, I don't think you can ever be truly successful selling them even if you have a short stint of of success monetarily, I don't think you're ever going to really love what you do if you don't love the products you're selling. 
True. And if you don't love it, you probably wouldn't, you know, spend an, like an entire night, right? Uh, trying to get this thing up and running before anybody takes the idea or coding everything on your own. And, and I mean, it, it sounds like, and I'm sure it, it was a lot more difficult in 1999 than it is to do it today. You know, today it's so much easier to start, you know, a business online and, and, and ship and, and take payments and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I started, 99% of my orders were over the phone because people, once I did have a way to actually enter in your credit card number, everyone said, I don't want to put my credit card number online. <laughs> I'd rather give it over the phone. <laughs> yeah, so they do it over the phone where I'm on a cordless phone and I'm writing it down on a piece of paper. You know, that's far less secure, of course. But we still get people who are like that. I mean, it's a tiny percentage, but there's still people who are afraid to put their credit card number in, even though we never see anyone's credit card numbers and we haven't in years and years and years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we use Amazon payments. We use PayPal. PayPal accounts for almost 30% of our, our payments online. And we've been with PayPal since the very beginning, the, since the day they started operations, we took PayPal and have always had a great relationship with them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it has gotten a lot easier and the way people pay is a lot easier, but as we grow larger, the expectations of our customers are a lot different. Our customers who have been with us forever know what to expect when they're expecting a handmade item that's going to differ slightly from the picture, that's going to wear differently over time. Some of our customers who are just coming to us for the first time expect everything to be perfect. So explaining that expectation of what real handmade items are and to enjoy the differences rather than complain about them is, it's definitely one of the difficulties we have, but it's a, a tiny minority of our of our customers, most of whom just love what we're doing. What advice do you have for business owners who are working in similar like international situations? I think the most important thing is to be there, to go and spend as much time. You know, if if my wife and I didn't have a ten year old, we'd probably be in Nepal quite a bit more than we are. The country's absolutely incredible. The people are amazing. And, you know, we had an earthquake in, in Nepal this time last year, just mm -hmm. about a year ago. Yeah. And when that happened, you know, it was it was terrifying for all of us. We were just trying to locate our our family members. I mean, they may be business partners, but at this point, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who we had to locate. And some of our best some of our best mala makers and prayer flag makers were missing for weeks. Oh, no. And it took us a long time to locate them. And once we finally did, we were sending money over there without any hopes or expectation of them getting anything done. We were just making sure they had food and water. We raised $20,000 with Mercy Corps to help in the area. And then we had our customers send in thousands of tarps and water purifiers, which we shipped over to Nepal. We were on the phone with um, uh, Sandra Levin, our congressman here, has deep ties to Nepal. And if you're wondering about his name, I happen to be named after him. He was a family friend. So his wife has family in Nepal. So we've been in contact constantly trying to get things to be better there. But yeah, whenever you're working overseas, you have to make absolutely certain that people are telling you the truth, that products are being made the way that you expect them to. On our last trip there last year, we went to a carpet company that we had just started working with and we popped in on them sort of last second and we discovered they were not making carpets the way they claimed to be making them. So we immediately canceled our orders and moved on. You can't just except that someone's making things by hand or that it's fair trade or that there's no child labor involved unless you go and see it for yourself. Because even a company that gets certified as fair trade can get that certification and then immediately start hiring children and 
you know, do things the wrong way. And we've seen it a lot over the years. So you have to be there. You have to see it. You have to make those relationships. Otherwise, you really don't know what you're getting. I've known many people who thought they were buying beads from Thailand. And, you know, they had met the people who were selling them to them. But what they were actually buying is Chinese-made beads that were shipping through yeah. Thailand. You know, it's something that you've got to keep a really close eye on if it matters. And there are a lot of people who that doesn't matter that much to. For us, it's just not something we could do. Certainly, there are products coming out of China that are uh, being made fairly and, uh, and respectfully. And certainly, that's happening. But you never know. I'm so fascinated with, with this type of thing. I, have, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine like a week ago about how they in their current position, they just didn't feel like they were doing what they were supposed to. And it, it seems like you have a very clear call in this area. And one thing I'm kind of interested in is how do you mentally process what I, what I mentioned just a second ago of like, you're running a business, but you're also providing a, a good, like how do, how do you balance all that? How does that play out in your head? You know, for probably the first 10 years of running Dharma shop, it was a day-to-day kind of hand-to-mouth. If we don't sell a few hundred dollars worth of things today, we're not going to be able to pay our bills. Once we bypassed that and we made enough for us to live on, there was a choice whether to continue growing and get larger as a company or just stay kind of small and continue running it out of our garage. I think my wife wishes we had stayed small and stayed in the garage. And some days I feel like that too, because it was wonderful. I mean, it was great to wake up in the morning, you know, answer a few phone calls, pack 10 or 15 orders in your pajamas, and then go off and, and live life. The problem was by then, we had so many suppliers who were sending us emails every day, please, can I introduce this new line of beads or this new line of prayer flags? We had become some of these artists' only lines of support. And it became very crystal clear to us after the earthquakes when suddenly these people who were expecting tourists to walk by their shops every day, tourism died after the earthquakes. There was nobody there. So the emails we were getting were, hey, I haven't sold anything in two weeks. Could you please order some more products for me? We definitely hit a point where we moved from supporting ourselves and our families to supporting a group here in Michigan and supporting a group of hundreds in Kathmandu. And that was a really hard choice for us to make because we're certainly not making more money doing what we're doing now that we're a lot larger, but we have the knowledge that we're supporting so many more people and customers call us every day and tell us how much they love what we do. And that's, that's the reward of it. Certainly we are, I'm not saying we're not making any money and we're losing money. We're, we're doing well for ourselves and we're really happy to, to have built a successful business but if we changed our supply chain to China tomorrow, we'd be making millions a year. And that's just not as important to us as directly supporting the people who we've been supporting all of these years. You kind of answered my next question then, but it was like, how do you feel like the commitment and the dedication that you have to this affects the success? And I'll allow you to define success how you want to of the Dharma shop. Yeah, success is one of those things that is just... It's so, so very difficult. And I think I'm 48 years old, and I think that this is one of those moments of reflection when you reach a certain age and your kids get to a certain age. And, you know, we've had a lot of success in this business. As I mentioned, I coach volleyball as well. And I really couldn't reach much higher. I've, you know, been invited to work with our 
U.S. Olympic team, and I'll be in California for the next few weeks coaching there. Success is what you make of it. I mean, you can be just as as happy with not a lot and as you can be with everything. I meet people all the time who are staying in the most expensive hotels and are miserable. And I meet people who travel all over the world and don't have any fun doing it. Whether we were staying in someone's you know, home in their spare bedroom or staying in a beautiful hotel somewhere, we've enjoyed the journey of it. And it's something that success is, is really a difficult one. We have been successful. We have made money with the business, but that's not really how we gauge it. The fact is we wake up every day with a mission in life that we want to accomplish and we're accomplishing it a little bit at a time. But yeah, I mean, since I'm also a coach in sport, you're never finished. And we feel the same way with with this. We're never really finished. We can never get to a point where we say all of our artisans are are set for life. They can raise their children and send their kids to school and have clean water. That's something that's a day-to-day process. The same way that coaching a team is they're never done. You know, you're always striving and reaching to be better as as an athlete or as a person. So those two seemingly very different parts of what I do with my life actually interact quite a bit. In general, then, not necessarily for you in particular, but if you were going to talk to other business owners, what ethical responsibilities do you feel like online retailers have to their suppliers? It's really tricky because I get frustrated when I see other people characterizing as something they're selling uh, as being spiritual or having healing properties or something that's going to cure you of something or that it's from Tibet. I think at the beginning of the internet, and it's horrible that I can kind of say that, every time I saw some scammer online, I felt personally offended by it. Like anyone who sort of scams you online is making everyone online feel like they're going to get scammed all the time. And I still kind of feel that way. I think that businesses do have a responsibility to tell the truth. And when your products are coming from China and they're they're being made by people who you haven't personally met, if they're coming from Nepal, I mean, there's plenty of, of, unfortunately, there's an enormous number of people who are working in poverty and in factory situations in, in Nepal as well. So I think it's really important that that people have a responsibility to check in and, and make sure things are being done the way they, they should be. It's not to say everyone's got the same beliefs, but at least tell the truth. I mean, there's quite a few people who are selling yoga products that are quite obviously to my eye being made, you know, factory made. And they're saying that they're being handmade by monks and each one of them are signed by monks who are making them. Well, monks don't make malas in Tibet. It's just not something that happens. And I think people do have a responsibility to at least tell the truth. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to buy the right things from the right people, but at least to tell the truth of how you're sourcing materials and how you're buying products. Sandra, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today? No, not at all. I mean, other than the fact that it's, um, you know, it's, this is a, a life that is full of headaches when you own your own business. It's uh, There are times that we've been on vacation for the first time in two years and our website went down and we're on the phone for half of our vacation trying to get our website back up. It's definitely, um, it's something that's a 24-hour-a-day job. But I don't think Christy or I would trade what we've been able to accomplish for anything at this point because 
the number of people who we've interacted with here in Michigan, across the country, the the people we've worked with at yoga studios in Arizona and in California and everywhere we travel with this, we've met people we never would have met before who've become some of our best friends in the world. So there's so many different levels in which running a business internationally or within the U.S. can can bring incredible growth spiritually and, and financially. And it's been an incredible journey. And, uh, you know, we're, we're thrilled to have been able to do it. Where can we find out more about you and your business? Well, there's uh, our website, dharmashop.com. That's D-H-A-R-M-A-S-H-O-P.com. There's some great videos right on the front page of our site. And on Facebook, we do chronicle a lot of our, our day-to-day life. And it's Dharma Shop on Facebook as well. And the Dharma Shop on Instagram, where we post a couple times a day uh, where we are, what we're doing, and some of the model shoots and photo shoots we do on a day-to-day basis. So if you type in Dharma Shop, you're going to find in, find out uh, everything we're doing because we pretty much show up everywhere with that, uh, with that term. And that's just because we've been doing it for a long time, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah. This, this really thank has you. been quite a fascinating interview. I'm uh, motivated to go out and change the world now <laughs> with my business. <laughs> that sounds great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Sander. Thank, thank you. you for your time. One Stop Shop is a production of Receiptful. Learn how to personalize and tailor every interaction with your customer by visiting Receiptful.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Come Alive Creative. For help building, improving, and marketing your e-commerce store, visit ComeAliveCreative.com. To listen to more episodes from this series, you can visit Receiptful.com forward slash podcast. Or if you want to give us a rating on iTunes, Receiptful.com forward slash iTunes. Oh,